Welcome back to Bell Locks Hashtag Influencer, where we provide you with fresh perspectives and honest takes from those paving the way. On this week's episode of Hashtag Influencer, we are celebrating Women's History Month with a special guest. Box founder and host Sherry Langbert sits down with Stephanie Harris, owner and CEO of Partner Centric, the largest women's owned performance marketing agency in the US. Tune in now to get the inside scoop on trends, best practices and challenges of affiliate marketing and advice from the talented veteran in the space. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's nice to connect with you and see you face to face. I know our paths have crossed many times. So we'd love to hear about your superpower because you definitely have one and how that helped you start like your whole career and building partner centric. Yeah, great question. So I think that we ladies of the world, like definitely second guess ourselves a lot. And I think my superpower is just like following my instincts and, you know, betting on myself in, in all situations. Like, I just feel that we all put our pants on one leg at a time. We're all trying to figure it out. There's never a stupid question I can ask. And, you know, that I can, you know, navigate this world with the, you know, common sense that, you know, I see everyone else use and, and, and it will be okay. So I think that that has really allowed me to take chances and take risks and, you know, just take the bull by the horns, you know? You've built something pretty amazing. Like, what's the origin story with Partner Centric? Like, how did you get involved in the business? How did you start out in affiliate marketing? Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so everyone that's an affiliate and probably everyone that's also an influencer at this point, we, I think many people fall into it sort of by happenstance. Affiliate is something that I certainly fell into by happenstance. I was a business and English major at Binghamton University. And I thought I wanted to be in publishing because that seemed like the sexy version of those two majors. And right. Uh, we all know that they don't pay well, but I had done a internship while I was in Binghamton for a PR firm upstate, and they had me work on a Catholic charity's website because I think she was doing, I think the woman was doing like pro bono work for this charity. She was like, let me have this college intern do the website work. So I developed like a, an online portfolio. And so when I applied for internships at Scholastic Inc. and other publishing houses for the summer, I submitted this online portfolio and they put me into what they called the software group at Scholastic for a summer internship because I had this website experience and the person who I was paired up with in their department, she was launching the first affiliate program for Scholastic. This was like 2000, 2001. So like very beginning of affiliate. I'm just going to stop. So everyone knows, because I was on the tech side and you would pretty much be the only woman in a room. Yes. Yes. There was no women in any room. Yeah. Yes. And well, the, the, my like boss, um, I'm putting it in quote fingers. You guys can see it. Um, 
was also a woman and I'm still very close with her today. And she was a great mentor. She actually became a client of Partner Centrics years and years and years later of mine. But she, you know, she was like, listen, launch the affiliate programs for Scholastics, Scholastic Teacher Store, they had a few other properties. You know, we don't really know what we're doing with this stuff, but see what you can do this summer with it. And I loved it. I did a great job with it. Launched on Linkshare, which became Rakuten. And I went back full time after I graduated and continued that work in affiliate. So I start fell into it and continued an affiliate from the time I graduated college. So it's just been all I've ever done. The business only ever did affiliate marketing. And I can tell you a little bit about how I came to have this business from being that yeah. young scholastic employee. So I was there for two years in house. I got married. I wanted to find something that could provide me more flexibility. I wanted to work from home. So in 2006, I started working for two brothers, Shaft brothers, who started an outsourced program management company, which is, you know, um, a company you hire when you're in-house and you want to run an affiliate effort, but you don't have the headcount to hire someone for it. Mm -hmm. And so I worked remote for these two brothers. And we built this business that was called Shaft Consulting. There was an acquisition of a business called Partner Centric. So it became Shaft Partner Centric. I ran everything in that business. I took over that business as CEO in 2015. So I spent nine years. They had decided to step up as like chairman sort of thing, like didn't want to be in day-to-day operations anymore. So I became CEO of that business in 2015, right after I had my third baby. So I had like a two week old and I got this big promotion. I was very excited. And um, at the end of 2016, after having done that for a year, almost two years, I approached them about wanting to, you know, fully buy them out of that business. I felt it was really important for the ownership to be really present. I had ideas about what I wanted to do with that business. And so we completed that acquisition in early 2017 and it became partner. I created a business called Partner Centric Inc. out of those assets. That is unbelievable. Yeah. So it's been five years as Partner Centric Inc. Unbelievable. Like, yeah. Kudos to you. So given that, I want the advice. Like, what advice would you give to female entrepreneurs or people who want to become entrepreneurs? So I would say from the female perspective, I think that I definitely shocked them with approaching them. I was nine months pregnant with my fourth and final baby. So I don't think that, I don't think, I don't think people in general think that women are looking to take on things like that or to take those risks or even done their due diligence about what it would take to take those steps. So that conversation was very much like, well, you know, Stephanie, do you know how much money you're going to need? Do you know if you're going to be able to do this? If we do this, you can't go back. Like you can't just go back to being the CEO. If it doesn't work out, like where is this, you know, but like I said earlier, I think you got to bet on yourself. And I, I think all entrepreneurs, women, especially need to come with their I's dotted and their T's crossed, like do your due diligence, do your homework, before you, you know, take that plunge so that you have the answers for the questions, or like we were talking about earlier, 
you ask whatever you don't understand without any apology until you feel comfortable with what you're taking on. I think women apologize. We apologize a lot. Maybe it's because I'm Canadian. I don't know. I'm almost like, I'm sorry, I, but I apologize a lot too. I, I agree. And I have, you know, I'm raising daughters. I have three daughters and I find that they also do it even at like young ages. And, you know, I'm regularly saying to my oldest, she was in sixth grade, like, you don't have to apologize for the space you're taking up. You know, if she bumps into someone accidentally, I'm it's I'm sorry, but even if they've bumped into her, it's like, you you have a right to stand there. Like someone else yeah. bumped into you, you don't have to just apologize for standing there. And I just think that's like the epitome of, you know, what we're conditioned to do, or even if you know, entrepreneurs and business leaders, when we, when we are not happy with how something is going, like I just had something this morning where I was not happy with something. And I, I'm writing out this email, like, I don't want to see this happen again. Like I started it by saying, I'm sorry to say this, but, and then I erased it. Cause it's like, even though I still like, after I sent it, you know, you have whatever feelings you have, like you don't want to come down on people. You want people to want to do the job, but you also have a standard you want to uphold. And, and just that balancing act is very difficult. It's so hard. It's so hard. Cause then you also want to be nice to everyone. Like we're nice girls. Yes. Yeah. So you have this gaggle of kids. <laughs> How many kids? I have four. I think a gaggle is five and I'm not going okay. five, but I have four. I have four kids. I grew up in a house full, like my, I only have one, but we were four okay. children and I just, how, you know, we always talk about the work-life balance. That's not what I want to know. What do your kids learn from you? Like, what's the, like, what does it feel like to them to have a mom who's like this amazing CEO of a company and owner of a company? Well, you know, kids don't care. Kids are like the great equalizer. It's like, you know, I finished a meeting yesterday at 630 and then I have what, you know, we call like second shift, you know, my waitressing duty is in my kitchen with, you know, chicken nuggets, corn, you have to eat your salad, you got to do, you know, the yelling about homework not being done yet, who has to read to me, you know, they're still, they're still all, you know, elementary school age. And, you know, it's, I would say that my kids probably don't want to go into the kind of business I'm in. I think they see it as like, mommy's on the phone a lot or mommy's on zoom a lot mommy's talking a lot for what she does but don't really understand it but I think what they do see is that they come first but I also have other things in my life that are a priority for me and that I have people that depend on me for other things and so you know, one of the things that became really important during like the height of COVID when everybody was home was teaching my kids that, you know, they can have a, have a need, but I can address it after I'm done with something, unless they're like bleeding or banging their head against <laughs> the wall or whatever it is. And, and, and that taught us both patience. Cause like I had to be more patient with them and, and it was hard for them to share me you know, once they were home all day long and seeing me through my office door and I wasn't accessible, you know, we had to find a balance with each other. So I think that 
you know, the whole balancing, like you were saying before, there is no such thing, but at least kids, you know, especially with their parents working from home, we're able to see that, like, you've got to share mom sometimes, you know? I feel like seeing a mom work, for me, it's made my kid just like, it's like, he's like a tougher kid. Like, he's like, wait, my mom is like really like moving mountains here. And so I think it makes them tougher. And one of the things that I had to do, and I only have one, so it's much easier. There's no sharing. But one of the things that I realized during COVID was like, we're going to treat every weekend like a vacation. Like, I Mm. don't want to be like, I'm doing errands. Like every time I would get on the phone with someone, we're doing errands, we're doing errands. I'm going to the cleaners. I'm going to the... And so we try to literally make every weekend like something crazy that we're going to do. And whether it was we dyed our hair blue one weekend or we went, you know, we did a ton of kayaking, but we try, I tried to make it feel like every, like this weekend's a vacation. What are we doing? And it didn't have to be something big, like went to a rock climbing wall. It was like, you know, but he felt, you know, so I think, but I do think that having a mom as a CEO, especially if you have girls is just an incredible gift um, that you're giving them. I'm about to cry. (laughs) well I I love that I love that you were doing that and I think that you know as moms they you know we there are different gender roles and we all try and have balance with our partners and our spouses but they come to us my kids definitely come to me more I'm more present in the house even if I'm working and they come to me for the nurturing and 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 the support and and that kind of thing and then if you're stressed because of something that's going on with work, you have to figure out how to like turn that off enough to be able to give them that. Yeah. And sometimes you, sometimes you can't, sometimes what they're learning is that, you know, we're human also. And, you know, I could cry because I'm thinking about like, you know, I think my girls, especially do definitely talk about what they want to be when they grow up. They want to be a mom and they want to be a mom who also owns like my little one wants to own a makeup salon one day, you know, she's very into makeup and whatever, because they think that, you know, you can, you can, you know, quote, do it all. And, and my concern for them ultimately is that they see a realistic picture of that. So they don't have like unrealistic expectations of themselves in trying to accomplish all of those things, you know, if they want a family, I think that's wonderful. I want them to do that. I just want them, you know, I think one of the things as women that we really beat ourselves up about is just like not being enough for any one of those things at any given time. Like something always has to give. Yeah. Yeah. Very, we could go on for like a whole other hour talking about. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So I remember I went to an affiliate summit and it was a little bit frightening for me. And a lot of, you know, characters in the room, I'm going to say it was probably 2013, but like, where do you see (laughs) affiliate, like from when you started in the space, like what's been the biggest changes in the space? Is it more respected? Is it because it was like, always like the last afterthought and, oh, it's shady. And what do you see the biggest changes have been? I think that, I think the industry grew up around the coupon and loyalty of it all. It was definitely like in the beginning of the industry, 
people trying to navigate shopping on the internet, a lot of these mom and pop shop affiliate sites popped up that were sharing coupons and deals they were able to find if you were willing to shop online. Because that was like how we incentivized people to actually shop online back in the early 2000s was through getting a better deal online than what you could get in the store. And that's, those were the early affiliates. That's how it really became more of a coupon centered industry. And then over time, you know, that has just really evolved, especially with the advent of, you know, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, the digital press, we'll even call it like usatoday.com, forbes.com, goodhousekeeping.com, where they used to really only have you know, traditional advertising partners on their, you know, article pages. Now it's all. Now it's all affiliate links. I mean, now if you're a PR agency and you're pitching a story to these Mm -hmm. digital press editors and you're saying, I want you to write on goodhousekeeping.com about these couches that can be delivered to your house, they're going to say, does that company have an affiliate program? Because if not, we're not even going to consider it. They still go through the editorial staff but they okay. need to be able to monetize the links because after COVID, a lot of those traditional advertising budgets dried up and it forced a lot of these digital press websites to uh, supplement what they used to be getting from like straight up, you know, CPM. Yeah. To instead also have these affiliate links. And so in a way, you know, it's added to legitimacy and relevancy of the affiliate space like never before, certainly like the social media influencers, you know, so many brands want to push that effort through the performance channel because they would rather pay, you know, on a backed out CPA than all these like flat up front fees. But, you know, there's a balancing act there too. So it, it has added a lot of relevancy to the channel. There's you know, so many different avenues for these performance-based relationships that are not just coupon and loyalty anymore. So you see a lot of brands doing it. I I just think it's crazy. And I think it's crazy specifically that like, yes, you're going to these, the average consumer, the regular consumers going to a media site thinking that they're reading, but they're actually clicking on affiliate links. Yeah. And, you know, so many of them now put this like, you know, it's like little disclaimers at the top of the article, like, you know, our, you know, these links, we may be commission, we may be commissioned for some of the links that you see to products in here, but the, you know, perspective is still an editorial, you know, we choose from an editorial basis, what we, what we want to discuss in this article or something. And so you mentioned something about like the CPA, like how does an affiliate, like you guys know, like when I'm working with influencers, like I don't know how many sales that person's going to get. And it's, you know, but you back into the numbers. Is there any sign? I mean, there obviously is a science, but like, how do you back into these numbers and say, if you spend this amount of money, we're going to get you 12,000 sales, or is it just, we're going to get you 12,000 clicks? Like, how does that work? So we will typically, when a client of ours wants to work with influencers, you have to figure out the budget. I mean, as you know, like a lot of these influencers, if they're willing to work on a hybrid basis, you know, where you can back out into a CPA also still want an upfront flat fee for discussing it. 
in addition to any product that has to be sent to them to do a review or like the free, you know, the pro- of course, product giveaways, you know, some of them want to offer their photography. You know, this exactly, exactly. You know, I think that the platforms have made this conversation a little bit easier because they now have, like, you know, those embedded, you know, like if you have a link trace, like click through your, through your link mm-hmm. tree or, you know, Instagram has their own, you know, affiliate platform. Now, if you want to embed your links with affiliate links, we'll often try to, you know, work with them on like specific coupon codes that we are blocking from being used from on like other sites. So if you're not clicking or using that code after visiting that influencer page, you're not going to be able to get like, if another affiliate picks up that coupon code that such and such they're not going to get, and they don't get credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helps cut down the noise as to what's really being generated through that relation. But it, it you know, it's more of an art than a science. Like we can say to a client, you want to go after mom, millennial moms, you know, this is the audience size. This is where, how they typically are converting what are the KPIs that we're trying to look back at often in affiliate? It's going to be back to like what actually was purchased within a certain time frame afterwards. We also might layer in additional KPIs that like, well, were there additional mentions that you got from these other, you know, from, from other people who are linking into that, you know, who were, who were, you know, adding or mentioning or doing comments on that, on that influencer's you know, post, you know, what was the level of engagement that actually happened after we did that? And does that give you more of a loyal, you know, advocacy base for your brand later? But often with affiliate, they really just want to know, like, what's the revenue that was generated from this? And at the end of the day, like, the higher the flat upfront fee, the more difficult the hurdle is to get a return on that. And so often if they're not happy with what they see, you know, we are not able to, for that brand, work with that influencer again in the future. Like, you know, it's, it's, you can't just say, well, it's for PR sake. Like it's just to get your name out there. And yeah, in my world, you can, in your world, you can't. In my world, you can't, in my world, you can't, but many try to, you know, many, many businesses try to push that effort through affiliate because they want that accountability. It's just that there's a lot of trial and error in trying to get there. It's very, cause you, and there's also no rhyme or reason. Some, they could push one product and they sell a boatload of them. And the next thing they do, it's, it doesn't work. Or one influencer can perform really well. And you think the next one, just like that person who's like a lookalike is going to perform well. And they don't. Right. hundred percent. And so when I first started in the space, it was like, okay, we could just send products to influencers and they're going to write for free. And those days are over clearly a long time ago. So do you see like openness Do any influencers still say, or is it just the tiny ones that will still do affiliate only? Or like, what's the response from influencers when you approach them? I think because it takes a lot of effort for them to create original content and enthusiasm around what you're asking them to do. They, even the small, even the smaller influencers want some sort of, you know, upfront payment. I mean, the truth is we're not going to go after someone who has 200 followers who probably would take free, you -hmm. know, product instead, because it's just not enough eyeballs. Like there's definitely that sort of like 
you know, you don't want someone of a Kim Kardashian size, not only because you don't have the budget for it, but because it's too broad, it's too, it's too macro. And the conversion on that is not going to be where you need it to be. But if it's too small, you're not getting enough traction for what the effort takes to spend the time and the brand's time to send products and everything. So, you know, I think everyone wants something up front. It's a matter of like what the combination is of upfront versus the commission they're going to get and how high that commission is mm-hmm. for the transaction. Many of them are getting the VIP rates in these programs. They're getting much higher than what the default is Okay, for other partners. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, so much has changed in this space. And I think, you know, you, I think even in the last five months, just influencer rates have tripled. Like mm. we're dealing with people like who used to charge a certain rate. And now they're like, no, my rate's three times. And like some of the, it's, it's because look, Inflation. The, yeah. And, and at the end of the day, like, I don't think people think about it. Like, yes, you're getting a product. These people are taking the pictures. They're sharing it with their audience. They're staging it. Like, there's a lot of work that goes into it. So yeah, it's, it's a crazy process. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, some of the things that you're seeing like on Instagram or on TikTok, like I know they've added like shoppable, you know, you could shop within the cart, like you're not moving from the site and how that affects affiliate or have you done anything with live stream shopping with affiliate, like on Amazon, for example, anything like that, that comes to mind for you? We actually are doing, we're doing a day of learning here at Partner Centric in three weeks and what, where we're trying to get, it's going to be our first one. And we're trying to do for our staff, like to support them better in, you know, gaining additional like mastery or expertise and things that are like these new and upcoming trends that you're talking about. One of the brainstorming sessions is actually on the live streaming connection to affiliate, because we do have I would say that we don't, it's not that clients are coming to us and saying, we want you to run, like help us like manage the like Amazon live stream shopping event that we're doing. You know, it's more that we see it as an area of opportunity. There's, we, I don't see it intertwining with affiliate very much yet. I mean, Amazon associates is that the, the, the people doing that on Amazon are part of the Amazon associates and that's like its own the original affiliate program and platform was the Amazon Associates program. So, you know, but, but we're definitely watching that a lot. We've done a couple of different like tests with clients who are, you know, are um, really best suited for that to see what the traction will be like from an affiliate perspective, but like jury is still out on that. But I think it is something really that is going to become more and more part of a conversation. And just like everything else, it's going to be backed out to a performance basis. It's something <laughs> that we're doing and we're going to have to figure it out. Yeah. Well, let me know when we do. I'll, I'll keep you yeah. posted on my progress as yes, well. Yes, I would love to hear. Yeah. So we're in the same boat. So it's been lovely. And so I, I just am so I could keep talking to you for the next, you know, so thank you for sharing all your insights. And again, congratulations on all the amazing things that you've accomplished. I just, I'm going to end with the question I always do. So it could be funny. It could be serious, but name an influencer you love to follow, but hate to admit that. I was, I was thinking about this and I was looking at my Instagram feed this morning 
And the trend that I'm noticing, and it's going to sound very silly, but I follow a lot of people who used to be on like trashy or non-trashy reality shows and have since <laughs> left. So like I have people from like Teen Mom on MTV that have since left that I follow. I have people, I have like Bethany Frankel from oh, I love Housewives and the Vanderpump, some of the Vanderpump people. And I think what fascinates me, why, I'm like, why do I follow these people? And I think it fascinates me that they started on like traditional, they, start, they all the power was in with MTV or Bravo or whoever. They were nobodies when they got on these platforms. And then through social media, they've amassed like millions of followers and have launched, have left those platforms and have launched these like crazy successful businesses. Businesses, yeah. Without the need for MTV or Bravo or whoever, you know? And so I do, I follow, like I have Chelsea DeBoer, who used to be on Teen Mom, who now has an HGTV show coming out and has like a furniture line and a clothing line. And I'm like, why do I follow this person? Why do I, why do I have them in my feed? But that's probably why. It's amazing. It's amazing to see like how these people like have evolved and also like, why did we watch them in the first place? And I think in the first place, it was like kind of comfort, like, okay, that person's life is like that. Mine's okay. Right. Well, in the teen mom example, I, you know, when I had had my first child, I remember like flipping channels and tuning into teen mom and being like, okay, I'm doing better than that. Like I'm not leaving my baby on a counter and she's falling over and like, I'm doing better than this 16 year old. So you feel what they're doing. Right. Like when I see certain people falling off chairs and I'm like, okay, I got it. I'm okay. But yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. We, we, we share a lot of the same um, sentiments there. So thank you so much, Stephanie. I can't wait to see where things, you know, go for you. We'll be watching and please stay in touch. It's been lovely having you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Bowbox Hashtag Influencer. Visit podcast.bowbox.com to get additional insights and full transcript. You can find our podcast channel via Apple, Google, YouTube, and Spotify. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button today to stay up to date on the latest episodes.